Tonight, I want us to look at Christ in the Song of Solomon. And we're going to look together at chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Song of Solomon 1, 1 through 10. And before we do, let me pray for us briefly, and then we'll come to the preaching of God's Word. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would do what you and your Son and Spirit alone can do in the ministry of your Word, that you would send it out with clarity and conviction, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears, that you would give us understanding, Lord. We pray that you would make us to know the unsearchable riches of Christ. We pray that you would cause our hearts to burn within us as you open the Word to us and as you reveal your Son to us. And so, Lord, would you do that tonight? Would you stir us up uh, from this portion of your word to uh, call on you tonight, to cry out as we have just sung, that you would give us more love to Christ, that you would increase in us affections for the Lord Jesus and a desire to know him and to follow him. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would intercede for us. Even now as your word is preached, would you remove from us Um, all of those thoughts and uh, affections that would take away from focusing even now on what you would say to us from your word. And so, our God, would you set the Lord Jesus before us in his beauty and glory and excellence, and would you make us to see his glory and beauty tonight? We do pray these things in his name. Amen. We're looking at Song of Songs, chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chamber. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself besides the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels." And I'll just read on for the sake of context. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me as a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful. My beloved, truly delightful, our couch is green, the beams of our house are cedar, our rafters are pine, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God 
endures forever. Well, as I noted last Lord's Day evening, many have failed to see the place of Christ in all of the wisdom literature, especially in the Proverbs. But perhaps more than failing to see Christ in the Proverbs in our day, commentators have resisted the older interpretation of Christ in the Song of Solomon. And if you were to go back throughout church history, almost in unbroken succession from the early church to the medieval church, to the reformers, and then to the Puritans, the entire church has seen this book about Christ in the church until about the 19th century. And the majority of commentaries today do not uh, see the Lord Jesus in this book. Many have simply noted that they think it is nine nuptial songs from the ancient Near East thrown together. Others have said it is essentially God's book to the covenant people to tell them how their marriages can flourish and thrive. And yet, I think as we look at this tonight, we're going to understand that there are a multiplicity of reasons why this book is pointing us to the Lord Jesus and is meant as especially the Puritans, the English Puritans of the 17th century understood it was meant to be a book that stirs up our affections for communion with God. One of the best of the Puritan works of that era was John Owen's Communion with God, which is essentially an exposition of this book. Um, John Calvin, in his Institutes on the Christian Religion, quotes Bernard of Clairvaux, a uh, medieval mystic, um, more than anyone else in the Institutes other than Augustine. And when he does, he quotes Bernard's famous sermons on canticles. Now, there's a lot that we don't know about this book. We're not entirely sure who wrote the Song of Solomon. And you may say, well, doesn't it say there in verse 1, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's? But there is debate. Is it written by Solomon or is it written about Solomon? Um, one of the reasons I lean toward Solomonic authorship is because if you look in First Kings chapter 4, when Solomon has asked the Lord for wisdom and God has given him that wisdom, that he becomes very skilled in things like botany and all sorts of literature and all sorts of knowledge and different sciences. And then we are told that Solomon wrote 1,004 songs. He wrote 1,004 songs. And the best educated guess that I have is this is the superlative Song of Solomon. This is the best out of those 1,004 songs, and God has put it in the canon for us for a very specific reason. Now, you'll remember if you were here with us last week that I said that we have to read the wisdom literature in light of the Davidic covenant. We cannot understand the Proverbs unless we understand God's covenant promises to David and the, the promises to establish the kingdom. And we talked a little bit about that in the same way I think we are meant to read the Song of Solomon as one theologian has put it, the Song of David's Son. This is the Song of David's Son. And you'll remember in the Davidic Covenant, God gave David promises that his son would sit on his throne and rule and reign forever. And that means that we are to set this book in its canonical context. And as we do, we start to understand from the analogies and the allusions and the elusive allusions and the types and the metaphors embedded in this song that it is, it is set squarely in the context of redemptive history. Everything that went before it is building into it. Um, when I was 
In high school, I got a 1-9 GPA because I realized that girls like guys that played the guitar, and I liked love songs and wanted to learn how to play everyone I could so I could get every date I could get. There is something about all of us that understand the way love songs work on us. They don't work on us so much intellectually, though there is a part to them that, that works on our intellect, they work on our emotions, they work on our feelings, they work on our affections. And just like a modern love song works on our affections, the Song of Solomon is meant to work on our affections. There is a sense in which gaining a spiritual understanding of it is less about parsing all the words and doing all the grammatical historical research, and it's more about understanding the impact of what God is wanting to say to us in this rich, superlative poem love song. Uh, we don't do well with that as Westerners. We like propositions. We want to go straight to Paul, but God has given us genres, and he's given us poetry. He's given us this, this song in particular to work on us spiritually by working on our affections. Now, that doesn't mean that there are not grammatical clues throughout this book to help us understand what it's about. Uh, one of those clues is found in the imagery in this song. For instance, at one point in the Song of Songs, the Shulamite, who is the object of the beloved's love, she says to him, hide me in the cleft of the rock. Well, where did we hear about a cleft of the rock? We heard about Moses being hidden in the cleft of the rock. And in another, another place, she says, what does my beloved see in me? As it were, Mahanaim, the dance of two camps. And where does that come from? That comes from Jacob when he goes to meet Esau and he separates and becomes two camps. And beyond that, there are those references to cedar, to walls of cedar. I don't know about you, but I've never tried to woo my wife by telling her she's like walls of cedar. But where did we find walls of cedar? You found them in the king's house and you found them in the temple. And then the botanical imagery helps us in redemptive history because we read of the beloved and the Shulamites speaking to each other in love terms, speaking about pomegranates and palm trees and lilies. And that language, you may know, comes straight out of the temple imagery. Carved around the top of the temple were pomegranates, palm trees, and lilies. It is temple language. And what the writer of the Song of Songs is doing is reflecting on God's works in redemptive history. And he's drawing all of this illustration and imagery from things that have gone before the writing of this book, and he is embedding it in there in the context of the Davidic covenant. Now, there are numerous, there are numerous characters in this book, and it makes it difficult. Um, this is not a nuptial love song between a beloved and his bride, and that's it. There are many characters. There is the beloved. By the way, if Solomon is writing this, there is a large probability that he is reflecting on his own father's covenantal relationship to the Old Covenant Church. Because you'll remember that the name David is beloved. Who is the beloved? Well, typologically, it is no doubt David that Solomon is reflecting on. And there is one place in Kings where it says that when David was coronated and made king, that the king's heart was wed to the people and the people's hearts were wed to him. And no doubt Solomon is drawing off of that imagery and he understands the relationship between the king 
who is God's covenant servant, who is over the people, is, as it were, a bridegroom to those people. And then if you were to ask who is the Shulamite, who is this woman that is interacting with the beloved throughout this, uh, the word Shulamite means one who receives peace. She is the peace receiver. He is the peace giver. She is the object of the love and the mercy and the peace of the beloved. And then there are all these other figures in here. There are the virgins and there are the daughters of Jerusalem. And what do we make of them? Well, when we come to the book of Revelation, we find that believers are shorthanded as the virgins who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These are those who know that they need the Savior, and they stay close to him and follow him wherever he is. And then in the Gospels, you'll remember that phrase, daughters of Jerusalem, is used as Jesus is going to the cross, and the women are weeping and wailing, but they're not wailing over their sins. They're weeping and wailing because they, in some sense, feel sorry for him. And he says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves. These are covenant members who are not yet believers. And all of that language is embedded in the Song of Solomon, and all of it is thrown under the rubric of the canon of Scripture so that we would do good to set it in that context. Now, tonight, before we come to our time of prayer, I want us to consider, I want us to consider four things out of the first 10 verses of this chapter. First, I want us to consider the excellencies of the bridegroom. And then I want us to consider the unworthiness of the bride. And then the bride seeking the bridegroom. And then the bridegroom declaring his love for his bride. The excellencies of the bridegroom, the unworthiness of the bride, the bride seeking the bridegroom, and the bridegroom declaring his love for his bride. We'll notice there that the book opens much in the way that Psalm 45 opens. Now, if you're having a hard time and you're saying, I've never heard this, I'm not sure, how do we know that that's what that means? Well, if you read Psalm 45, you would find striking similarity in language between it and the Song of Songs. And Psalm 45 opens um, by saying, um, my heart is overflowing with a rich theme. I recite my composition to the king. Uh, you are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. And the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 1 says explicitly that is about Christ. That is a messianic psalm. And what the psalmist is doing there and what the writer of the song is doing is trying to muster up in poetic form the excellencies of the Redeemer the beauty and the glory and the excellencies of Christ. And so as he opens, he opens with the Shulamite, the object of his love, saying, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Um, one of the things about our particular theological tradition as you look back at the great communion sermons preached by the Scottish Presbyterians or the Dutch Reformed or the English Puritans or even the Reformers was that in 90% in of the cases when they went to do one-off communion sermons, they went straight to the Song of Solomon because they understood there, there was something special about this book 
that was meant to stir up a desire for communion with God. Um, It's fitting, isn't it, that at the table, Jesus has chosen wine to show forth his dying love. And here the writer says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Um, There is nothing that we need more in our Christian life than to have our, our hearts stirred up to see and understand spiritually the excellence of Christ. There's nothing that we need more. When the Apostle Paul speaks about the love of Christ, he says the length and breadth and width and height, the unsearchable, the unsearchable, the incomprehensible love of Christ. And here the writer is trying to help us understand that the only way to compare the love of Jesus in in the believer's experience to understand what it means is to understand that analogy that wine makes the heart glad, that wine makes us merry, that it fills us with joy. And in the same way, Christ is more excellent. He gives more joy. He gives more blessing and more bounty. His love is better than wine. Notice the writer in speaking about the excellencies of the Redeemer says in verse 3, your anointing oils are fragrant, your name is oil poured out. Um, By the way, if you ever want to do a really rich comparative study, look at John's Gospel and the book of Revelation and compare it with the Song of Solomon. It's amazing how many overlapping themes and, and, and concepts there are. You'll remember in John's gospel when Jesus is going to the cross and he makes that stop in Bethany, the house of Mary, and she breaks that alabaster flask of very costly perfume on him to anoint him for burial, that John tells us, and he uses that sort of double entendre, he says, the whole house was filled with his fragrance. Now, he was literally saying the whole house was full of the fragrance. He was also spiritually saying that wherever Jesus is, wherever his dying love is, wherever his saving work is, there is a fragrance. He is the anointed one. He was anointed with the oil of gladness more than his companions. He is the great high priest. The writer can say your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Um, We're going to sing tonight after we pray how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. That's, That's what the writer is saying, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes our sorrows, soothes our fears, it drives away our fears. Um, the writer is trying to get us to understand something about the excellencies of Christ so that we will be drawn to him. Because until we see something of his excellence, we will never understand the attraction of the cross. Never understand really what the Christian life is all about. Now, I want to, I want to just... Note that it's not just the Shulamite who is proclaiming his excellence. It is these other believers. Notice at the end of verse 4, we will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Now let me put it this way. If this is just a marriage nuptial poem, 
between a husband and a wife, why do we have other people weighing in on how great he is? That's weird. If that happened at your wedding, that would be so awkward. And yet here is a collective group of believers who are together echoing what the Shulamite has said. And they're saying, essentially, we will extol him. We will rejoice in him. Rightly do they love you. They have come to see something of his excellence, something of his greatness. You know, later in this book, um, the writer will say, uh, the Shulamite will say about the beloved that he is chief among ten thousands. Now, let me just say this. David committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah. He is not chief among ten thousands. Solomon had a thousand women. He is not chief among ten thousands. The writer will say that you are altogether lovely. There's only one who is altogether lovely. The Apostle John, when he captures something of this, when the soldiers are sent to arrest Jesus in chapter 7, and they come back, and the Pharisees say, why didn't you arrest him? And they say, no man ever spoke like this man. He is altogether lovely. Grace is poured upon his lips. That's what the writer is wanting to stir up in your heart. If I could say this tonight, the biggest thing missing in the Christian church today is affections for the Lord Jesus. And one of the reasons why we lack them is because we've stripped him out of this book. This book is meant to stir us up in our communion. When was the last time we communed with the Lord Jesus? I want to ask you, when was the last time you communed with the Lord Jesus and you poured out in your heart these sorts of statements about his excellency? That's what it's meant to do. It's meant to have us meditate often on who he is and what he's done. But then notice, secondly, the, the bride, the Shulamite, she takes note of her unworthiness. Notice what she says in verse 5. I am very dark but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze upon me because I am dark. Now, the old writer saw in this something of the, the believer's acknowledgement of his or her depravity. What, what is there in me that could make him love me? I am dark. Even though he has told me I am lovely, I know what I am by nature. She says, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked on me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. And you can get the sense there. She's saying she hasn't cared for her soul the way she needed to. She hasn't taken care of her spiritual needs the way that she feels like she should have. And so she's acknowledging her depravity and, and her unworthiness. And yet, here's what's remarkable. The Shulamite acknowledging her unworthiness doesn't take away from the love of the bridegroom for her. This is what's remarkable. If we want to understand the greatness of the love of Christ, we have to understand it in light of the fact that we don't deserve that love. Charles Spurgeon, by the way, has a volume that's been published of his sermons on Song of Solomon, and it's called The Most Holy Place. And in one of those sermons on this passage, listen to this, Spurgeon said, what a wonderful thing it is that the Son of God should love us. I do not wonder so much that she, he should have any love for you, 
But I am lost in wonder at the fact that he has any love for me, even for me. Does not each believer feel that the wonder of wonders must ever be that the Lord Jesus loves him? Isn't that amazing? Not worried that he should love you. It's amazing that he would love me. I maybe told you this, but um, at our reception, at our wedding, and everyone was getting up and saying things mostly nice about Anna, and then my best friend got up, and I thought, oh no, here we go. And, and he got up, and he said, the greatest thing I can tell you about Nick is that Jesus loves Nick, and he sat down. And it was very powerful, because it's very true. The greatest thing about you, the only good thing about you, is that Christ loves you. Because there's nothing good in us. We are dark. The sun has scorched us. We have not taken care of our vineyards. There's nothing in us that makes us better than others or makes us presentable or makes us worthy of that love. And yet, Spurgeon says, oh, the love of Christ, it must ever be the wonders of wonders that Jesus Christ, the darling of heaven, should have set the eyes of his affection upon men of mortal mold, on sinful men, on me, that to me is the climax. Isn't that amazing? That to me is the climax. You know, the parallels between John's gospel and the Song of Songs is rooted in the fact that they both center on the love of Christ. I love the way that John captures this when Jesus is making his way steadfastly to the cross. And, and, and John says, there at the the beginning of chapter 13, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved us all the way to the cross. And the cross is the great demonstration of that love. It's the Father's love for his people that puts the Son on the cross. It's the Son's love for you that puts himself on the cross. The cross, as Augustine said, was a pulpit and the message was love. It is Jesus' dying love for unworthy sinners. And yet, he loves even me. He loves even you. Now, I want us to consider this seeking because it would not be sufficient for us to merely meditate on the excellence of Christ or our own unworthiness. But notice that as this great song unfolds, there is now the seeking. And notice in verse 7, notice there in verse 7 that that she has now transported herself out into the fields. And, And she is acknowledging that he is not just a king, but he is a shepherd. He is a shepherd and he has flocks. He is the good shepherd. And she's out in the fields and she's looking for him. Notice, tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at at noon, for why should I be one who veils herself besides the flocks of your companion? She is saying, I want to be in his flock. I want to find this shepherd king. I want to be where he is. I want to be with him and I want to be with his people. I don't want to be in a place gathered together with companions away from him. I want to be with him. Now, there is this theme of seeking, by the way. Turn over to chapter 3 and look with me at verses 1 through 3. And this is amazing when we compare it with one of the resurrection accounts at the end of John's gospel. Notice 
that the Shulamite, the bride there, says, On my bed by night I sought him, whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I found him not. I will rise now and go about the city and the streets and in the squares. I will seek him, whom my soul loves. I sought him, but did not find him. The watchmen found me. They went about in the city. Have you seen him, whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed by them when I found him. Whom my soul loves, I held him and would not let him go until I brought him into my mother's house. Now listen, if you're not already thinking of Mary Magdalene, let your mind go straight to the tomb. Mary is there and she's seeking the Lord. She's seeking the one that her soul loves. And she can't find him and she's asking, where is he? And she finds the watchman, the angel sitting at the tomb and she says, where is he? And she no longer, no sooner passes them that she finds the one she loves. And what does she do? She clings to him and he, he says, do not cleave to me. I go to my father and your father, to my God and your God. It is almost an unfolding of what you have in the Song of Solomon here in John chapter 20. And then turn over to Song chapter 5. And I want you to notice the seeking theme again. Notice that He now says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink, be drunk with love. And then verse 2, notice this. I slept, but my heart was awake, a sound. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of night. Now, There is almost certainly in Revelation chapter 3 an allusion to this when the bridegroom says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. Whoever opens to me, I'll come in and I'll I'll dine with him and he with me. It's almost verbatim. And notice, though, that as she has had his invitation to seek him, as she is being called to open the door and to commune with him, notice in verse 3, I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I bathed my feet. How can I soil them? She's making excuses. She's delaying. She's not seeking him as she ought to. Notice, my beloved put his hand on the latch. My heart was thrilled within me. I I arose to open and my hands dripped with myrrh. I opened to my beloved, verse 6, but my beloved had turned and gone. There is this this call to seek and this, this, this call to respond with haste, not to delay. Um, She delays and she can't find him because she's not pursuing him and seeking him as she ought. And yet she is, as it were, at war with herself. She wants to seek him, wants to be with him, wants to know his love, wants to know communion and fellowship with him. And then notice back in chapter 1 that the bridegroom now declares his love to the Shulamite. Notice she is asked where he pastures his flock. And now he says, if you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock. Now, very simply, he's saying, emulate the example of other believers. Follow in the tracks of the flock. See how others have followed me. Follow their example. Go with them. Do what they have done. See how they have sought me, how they have appropriated my love for them. 
Follow in the tracks of the flock, pasture your young goats, besides the shepherd's tent. And he now says, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your necks with strings of jewels. And so in order to get her to seek him, he now declares his love for her. Now, if you haven't seen this, there's this reciprocal thing going back and forth. It happens all through this book, and it happens in the Christian life. We start to see something of the excellence of Christ. We start to desire him. We recognize our unworthiness. We then begin to seek him. He then manifests himself to us, and then we don't press into seeking him as we ought. We pull back, and then when we seek him, we don't find him, and then he declares his love to us again, and we begin again on the journey of seeking him. And by the way, this is not just a picture of how a sinner comes to faith in Christ. This is a picture of the whole of the Christian life. There's never a time where this reciprocal love, engagement, and seeking acknowledgement of unworthiness, acknowledging that we need him and his love, that that doesn't come to bear in our lives. Um, Listen to this. Spurgeon in another sermon on the song said this, Are you weary and sick of life? You only need more of Christ's love shed abroad in your heart. Are you ready to faint through unbelief? You only need more of Christ's love and all will be well with you. Since Jesus first came to you and saved you, many times you've been in trouble. He has comforted you. You have been in labor. He has sustained you. You have been in disrepute, but he has honored you. Alas, you have proved yourself unworthy of his love, but he has forgiven your backslidings. You have wandered from him, but he has restored you. Remember his great love. Now, I'm going to leave this here tonight, but I'm going to encourage you to be reading through this book and reading through it spiritually. And reading through it to see the Lord, because there are riches in this book. Um, There's a reason why Spurgeon called his sermons the most holy place. This is the most holy place. This, This is where we understand more of God's love for us in Christ experientially, not just intellectually, but but that our souls are engaged. So that we be stirred up to pursue the one who has loved us, sought us, and drawn us to himself. I wanted to do this tonight so that as we come to our time of prayer, we would not just pray for things uh, by way of petition and supplication, but that we would pray that God would give us a greater desire to see the excellencies of Christ. There is nothing that we need more than that. There's nothing that you need more than that. I often tell you this, I don't need to know anything about you to know anywhere you are spiritually in life to know this is what you need, because I know it's what I need most of all. So as we pray tonight, I want to encourage you to pray the excellencies of Christ, to meditate on them, to pray that he'll give us a greater desire for him, a greater understanding of his love, that he'll root us in that love, that he'll give us a greater desire to seek him, that he'll heal us of our backslidings. He'll make us a people who are seeking to live in communion with the glorious heavenly bridegroom. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us, and then we'll come to our time of prayer. 
Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you for breathing out this book. We thank you for the riches of Christ that are in it. We do pray, our God, that you would do for us what the bridegroom does in this book for his bride and for the virgins who follow him, for those believers who see and understand his excellencies. We do pray, our God, that you would flood our minds and our hearts tonight with the glory and the beauty of Jesus, that you would make us to feel and see his excellence, that you would remove from us complacency, that you would heal us of backslidings, that you would forgive us, Lord, of our prayerlessness, our desire for other things, and that you would help us as we pray tonight. We do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.